The merchant of death is dead. That was the newspaper headline that jolted Parisians in that understated way that newspapers do. The date was April the 13th, 1888. Imagine waking up to that headline. Imagine your reaction that justice has been served. Imagine urgently scanning the article to discover who it was who had met their much-deserved end. Then imagine finding the name in the article and seeing it is yours. Your name. You are the merchant of death. Obviously, the headline was wrong. The merchant of death was not only alive, he was feeling pretty perky, sitting up in bed, eating his croissant. At least, he was feeling perky, until he read his own obituary. The merchant of death. Sometimes great good comes from mistakes, and this editorial error was about to change the course of history. The merchant of death, whose demise had people dancing in the streets of Europe, was Alfred Nobel. We know him as the man whose name adorns the prizes given out in Oslo every year for accomplishments in science, literature, and most prestigiously, peace. In his day, Nobel was one of the world's most influential scientists and became the richest. In 1867, he found a way to harness the energy of nitroglycerine and turn it into something really useful. This invention was dynamite. No, it really was. And it blew open new opportunities in construction and mining. Orders poured in from all over Europe and North America. But human nature being what it is, it was not only peaceful customers who were in the market. The governments of the world relished this new and devastating addition to their arsenals. Nobel became successful, rich and famous, and by all accounts he respected neither God nor humanity. And then that spring morning dawned that led Nobel to splutter into his latte and choke on his croissant. His obituary included the damning judgment that he had, quote, become rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before. Is this really how he was going to be remembered? Was the sum of his 51 years on earth this devastating epitaph? Something needed to be done, and not just a PR makeover, but a deep change in his life. How could he salvage his reputation and use his vast fortune to make the world a better place? Well, Nobel was single and had no children, and he drew up a will leaving his wealth in trust to a committee which each year would select people who had made positive contributions to humankind and reward them with sizable gifts. So in 1901, five years after his death, his real death, the first Nobel Prizes were awarded. Most of us are not as fortunate as Alfred Nobel. We don't usually get a glimpse of how the world will judge us when we're dead and still have a chance to do something about it. Seth didn't. 
Seth is the star of the parable of Jesus in today's gospel lesson. Jesus didn't give him a name, but I'm calling him Seth because for 2,000 years he's simply been known as the rich fool and no one should be defined just by their wealth or by their foolish attitude towards it. Now, unlike Nobel, Seth did die in his pride and greed. He was smart. He was accomplished. He was ambitious, hard-working, far-sighted, prudent. But he was farming on death row. His life was demanded of him that very night. Now, if the parable of Farmer Seth makes you feel uncomfortable, then get in line. Frankly, if this story does not trouble you, you probably don't get it. I get it, and I'm troubled. In the deep recesses of my mind, I'm stalked by the frightening prospect that I might be the rich fool. However, if the parable of Farmer Seth makes you feel guilty for having money, if it causes you anxiety because you are talented, hard-working, and have accomplished many things in your career, then maybe you don't get it. There's a crucial detail in Seth's story that we can overlook. It's the difference between his actions and his attitude. He's called the rich fool not because of what he does, working hard, investing, being entrepreneurial, but because of what he says to himself. His foolishness does not, does not lie in building up his business as if creating wealth were a sin. No, the secret of Seth's folly is his self-talk. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, Seth, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Wait. Did you see what just happened? He goes from making a reasonable business decision to build bigger barns to being lord of the universe. Instead of merely working hard and making the best of what God has given him, he's decided that one, he's going to live for many more years, and two, his harvests will continue to be good. He's not content with just being a successful businessman, now he's God. He decides the length of his days. He is in charge of when he dies. He even has power over the weather. He thinks he's become untouchable, that his business acumen has made him immortal, that his success has so insulated him from events outside his control that he will just go on forever being King Midas. If Seth had only had a Bible, the one with Paul's letters in it, he'd have read this from today's epistle. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Paul, our patron, beckons us into another universe. 
Actually, he doesn't beckon us into it so much as tell us that we're already there. We live in two different dimensions. The rules of this earthly universe don't apply in the other. It is heavenly. This is a realm where we have mysteriously died and been raised with Jesus. We are seated above this universe in this other dimension and can look down on it. Life in this world, in Seth's world, in your world and mine, is chaotic. It's harsh, demanding. It'll drive you crazy. It will destroy your perspective. It is life on the dance floor, and it is exhausting. You spin and stride and whirl. You waltz, you rock, you tango, you tire. Your feet ache, you long to sit. But you can't step off the floor because there is always one more dance, one more shimmy, one more light fantastic to trip. So you focus. My, do you focus. You need to. It's bewildering on the dance floor. It's all people and music and limbs and unpredictability. If you don't concentrate, you will step on someone's toes. You lose yourself in the dance. It's all you can see, all you can feel, hear and think about. Well, hear the word of the Lord. Get off the dance floor. Walk to the foot of the stairs. Climb them. Stand on the balcony and survey the scene. Look down and observe the dance. You'll understand it better. You'll notice patterns you could not when you were caught up in the intensity on the floor. And then when you've studied, learned and reflected, you can return to the floor and dance, this time with perspective. We've all heard the phrase, they are so heavenly minded, they are no earthly use. Yeah, it's kind of clever uh, and it's not a compliment. And we know what it means when we hear it. Someone is so aloof, so removed from the reality of suffering, so shocked by the existence of evil, so out of touch with what normal people think and do and feel, that they spend all their lives in blissful isolation, insulated from the experiences of regular people and doing nothing to help. If they do poke their head out of their ivory towers, it's only to judge people. But what if being heavenly minded was a good thing? What if you are so heavenly minded that you start to see the world through the eyes of God? What if you can be so heavenly minded that when you see the suffering of the world, you feel God's pain? What if you are so heavenly minded that when you encounter injustice, prejudice, cruelty, your faith forces you to do something about it? What if you and me and everyone who calls themselves Christians were so heavenly minded that when we encounter evil, we can't just walk by on the other side, retreat into our hermit's caves and pretend that, nothing, that everything is wonderful in paradise. What if you are so heavenly minded that when we see from God's perspective, 
the true belovedness of every human being, we join in Paul's great declaration that there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, immigrant and citizen, white or of colour, gay or straight, conservative or liberal, or any other division that we care to name, but that Christ is all and is in all. What if, St. Paul's, we can be so heavenly minded that we become known in our town and county as people who enter with Christ into the full messiness of life, and when we behold evil and suffering, we can't just sit still, but we must love and liberate, bringing light and health and wholeness. I wrote this on Thursday a couple of days before El Paso and Dayton yesterday. And within the context particularly of the evil of El Paso, or at least what appears to be the evil motives of the El Paso murderer, those words take on a different poignancy. This is getting on the balcony. This is seeing the world through the eyes of God. This is being heavenly minded, so heavenly minded that it is of every earthly use. From Seth, the rich fool, to a poor wise man, Thomas Merton. Once when he was visiting downtown Louisville, he wrote this. At the corner of Forth and Walnut, in the centre of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realisation that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness. I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. And there'd be no more rich fools. Move over, Seth. God's people are here, and we will see this world through Christ's eyes, serve this world with Christ's hands, and love this world with Christ's heart. Amen.